Now, if you would open your Bible and turn to the book of Job, chapter 38, as we continue on in our study. Job, chapter 38, and now we come to the, uh, the, the real climax of the book as God himself responds to Job. God's response uh, covers several chapters. We're going to re- just read chapter 38 and then the first part of chapter 40 this morning. Job chapter 38, let's give our attention to God's word. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here are we, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or who has given understanding to the mind? Who can number the, council, the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thickets? 
Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? And so on and on it goes for another chapter. Let's go to chapter 40. Verse 1, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our God in heaven, the most critical thing for our life is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And we are completely dependent upon you to reveal yourself to us or we will never know you. And so, Lord, this morning, whatever the context or circumstances of our life, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us as God. And that seeing you, we would worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1966, Elizabeth Elliot published a controversial novel, her only novel. Uh, it's entitled No Graven Image. It's a story about a, an intrepid 25-year-old young woman uh, named Margaret uh, who... Um, determined that God had called her to missions, and uh, so she set out for the Andes Mountains of Ecuador to reach the Indian tribes there. Um, she saw very little progress at first, but eventually she gained a, sort of a standing in the community and, and uh, a hearing. Uh, her primary work there, her primary goal, was to translate the Bible into their native language. The pr difficulty was that um, they, the language was unwritten. There was no alphabet. Uh, Tim Keller writes, key to her work was the discovery of a man named Pedro who knew the unwritten dialect, and, and she could converse with him as well in, in Spanish, but he knew this unwritten dialect that she needed in order to uh, translate the Bible. So um, he began to teach her this language, and, and she began to painstakingly uh, systematically record and document the language so that, that she could uh, proceed with the translation. Uh, Pedro was a wonderful gift. Well, she was so thrilled that uh, God had blessed her with Pedro, and, and uh, she recounts in the book, uh, Margaret does, that, that she was walking one day towards Pedro's house to continue the work, and, and she's just thanking God in her heart for, for how well the work was proceeding, and for the, the, particularly for the gift of Pedro. Well, when she got to the house, she found that Pedro had suffered a wound in his leg and it had become infected, uh, grossly infected, um, and uh, he clearly needed an antibiotic. But in the good providence of God, she carried in her bag with her penicillin just for such emergencies uh, like this. And she explained that to Pedro, asked him if he would like uh, an injection. He said he would. And, and so she proceeded to give him uh, the treatment. Well, unbeknownst to her uh, or to Pedro, um, he was highly allergic to penicillin. And um, immediately began to experience um, anaphylaxis. Uh, he began convulsing and vomiting. Uh, his, his wife, Rosa, was uh, beginning to wail the death wail and, and accusing um, Margaret of killing her husband. Well, Margaret began to pray, Lord, 
uh, you gave Pedro to me. You called me to this work, the work of translating the Bible. If Pedro dies, it all comes to a screeching halt. I can't possibly move forward. And so please, she begged God to preserve Pedro for his family's sake and for the work uh, of the gospel. But Pedro died right there in front of her, in front of Rosa, his wailing wife, and his terrified children. And she left with the words of Rosa ringing in her ears, you killed him. And that's basically how the story ends. There's no silver lining. There's no um, neat explanation of why this was necessary or good. There was no um, event, unexpected event, that, that would make sense of this senseless tragedy. There's just a confused young missionary struggling to, to, to make sense of the fact that the God who called her to this mission work had now completely closed it down and that, that though she had begged him to preserve Pedro, God had allowed Pedro to die and actually by her own hand. And the question is, what are we to do with a God like that? As Margaret stands by Pedro's grave grieving, she asks this question. And does he now, I asked myself there at the graveside, does he ask me to worship him? Have you ever asked a question like that? in the context of some great heartache or maybe a long-standing grief? What are we to do with God when He does devastating things in our life? As we stand alongside the wreckage of a failed marriage or grieve at the graveside of a loved one or suffer the betrayal of a friend or experience the devastation of our health, Does God, the God who allowed and even ordained all those things to happen, does that God now ask and call you and expect you to worship, to submit, to praise, to trust? It's very similar to the question that Job has been asking. As we've studied, Job's life was full. It was a good life, surrounded by his ten children. The Lord had prospered him in every way. And then the Lord allowed the devil to decimate and utterly eviscerate his life, to destroy his life. His ten children die in one day. All of his wealth is gone in one day. And then his health is taken away. And these events have shaken Job's faith. He began in worship, but as his friends are betraying and pestering him and accusing him of doing wrong, and Job knows he has not done wrong, he has begun to believe that the world is not being run the way it ought to be run, that God is treating him as though he were a great sinner, and he is not a great sinner. He is a righteous man, not a perfect man, but he is a righteous man, and so it is not right for God to treat him as he is. What happened to Job should not have happened. It's not right that it happened. And Job would simply like God to acknowledge that. 
And he's asked repeatedly for a chance to meet with God and to lay out his case, why this was not right, and to have God answer him. We saw it most powerfully in chapter 31, verse 35, where he makes his case and then says, here is my signature, let the Almighty answer me. Well, in chapter 38, Job gets his wish. God does answer him, but not as Job had expected. First, let's look at the appearing itself. Verse 1 of chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. A God appears in a surprising way. He comes in a mighty storm. Booming, crashing thunder, flashing lightning, a fierce, whirling wind. It's very possible, if you read chapter 37, you, you, it seems that Elihu has, has noticed this storm approaching, and, and he spends some time in, the, uh, in chapter 37 talking about God and the storms. And, and maybe that storm has now finally broken over Job and, and Elihu, as they, as they are, Elihu as they're standing there, and... Um, and now out of this crashing thunder and flashing lightning and whirling fierce wind, God speaks. It's sort of the appearance that we have at Mount Sinai. And remember how the people responded at Mount Sinai. When the thunder was crashing and, and uh, the mountain was shaking, uh, the people did not rush forward and say, we want to meet God. They were terrified. And they said, we cannot possibly go and hear him. Moses, you go. They were terrified. This is, a, this is an appearing that is meant to shock and awe. God is coming in his, robed in his majesty. And that's unexpected because, well, Job is, is his cherished child and a suffering child. A mother's, when, when one of your children is, is wounded or hurt in some way, you don't generally robe yourself in your majesty and go thunder at them. You go and you gently comfort them. You find out what's wrong. You see how you can help. You try to, you try to bring comfort. Why? But, but why doesn't God do that? But he, he does not do that. He comes in all of his glory... To make it clear, you see, that he has not come primarily to comfort Job. He's come to admonish him. He's come to rebuke him. And that's how the speech begins, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That is not a promising beginning. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Who are you? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. To dress for action like a man, it's, it's taken from the wrestling world to get ready for a wrestling match. God is going to enter into a contest with Job. Job has been asking him to, in a sense, challenging him to. And now it's clear, um, God tells him the rules. Right? I will question you and you will answer me. God isn't there to answer the questions, he's there to ask them. And in rapid-fire succession, the Lord asked him some 70 questions, 77 some say, 77 questions with one point. I am God. I am God. And I do what is right. 
And so let's look, secondly, at the test. Verses 4 and following. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its, found, its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, Derek Thomas, in his uh, um, sermon on this, points out that these questions, uh, they don't sound fair. God is asking Job questions he knows Job can't answer. It, it doesn't sound fair. Why, why ask him about when the world was made and where is cornerstone, who put that, and, and about the deeps of the sea and the, and the constellation of the stars, things that, that Job has no, he has no idea. And, and even more, it doesn't, seem, it doesn't seem relevant. Job is grieving. He's been, he's been completely devastated by the loss of his ten children and all of his wealth and then his health. And then the betrayal of his closest friends. And the silence of God. He's a broken, grieving man. So why now does God ask him these questions about things he cannot possibly know? How are any of these questions relevant to the issue on the table? What about the pain? What about Job's pain? Doesn't his seemingly unjust suffering deserve a forthright response. Why doesn't God answer the tear-filled, heart-broken questions, pleading questions of his child? But instead, God pounds him with questions of his own. I want you to, to, to feel the tension of that because this is precisely where many people walk away from the faith. The primary reality in their mind, the issue on the table, is their suffering, their pain. And all they ask God to do is to respond to it, to acknowledge it, to give maybe some explanation for it. And if he doesn't do that, if he will not do that, well, they will have nothing more to do with him. What good is that God? Some of you have been tempted to do that. In bitterness, because of your grief and God's failure to respond as you'd hoped and expected. Others of you will be tempted to do that. But you see, we need to realize that the primary reality in our world is never our pain. The primary reality in our world is always God. And the primary purpose in the world is, is not our comfort. The primary purpose in the world is the glory of God. That is, that is just a fact of reality. It's an incredibly relevant text for our day. This is where the God of the prosperity gospel and the God of the therapeutic gospel and the God of the social justice gospel show that they are not the God of scripture because you see those gods exist for our 
purposes. They are defined by our desires. They are crafted for our pain. They are expected and designed to meet the issue that we think needs meeting. They're the God of our plans. But we make an idol, you see, when we create a God of our plans, a God of our expectations. And hence the title of Eliot's book, No Graven Image. It's taken, of course, from the second commandment, right? You shall have no graven images. Commandment against idolatry, against fashioning gods according to our preferences, according to our assumptions, according to our expectations. And you see, the point of the book is that while young Margaret was busy rescuing the Indians of Ecuador from their graven images, from their idolatries, God was busy rescuing Margaret from hers. Because she had a God of her plans. They were good plans. You could say they were even biblical plans. But God asked her to trust him when he didn't, he didn't keep those plans. He had plans of his own. See, if we're honest, we have our own West Michigan middle class expectations of what God ought to do with our lives. We have a God of our plans. A God who exists to help us attain the life that we desire. And we trust Him to do that. And then are easily devastated when God does not do that. And we wonder, how could we trust Him? You see, this is the challenge of God's response here in Job chapter 38. We feel, if if you've been paying attention to the book, you should feel the weight of Job's cause. His pain is real. His suffering is, is inexplicable. It doesn't make sense. And we, we would like God. We would, this would be such a, an easier story if God would come and, and comfort Job and explain what he was doing and why it made sense and, what, and, and, and then promises in this speech, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to restore it all. We, that's the speech we would prefer. That's the speech I would prefer. But it's not the speech that God makes. He comes instead to rebuke Job, his servant, his suffering servant. Anderson writes, here is a very great depth. There is a rebuke in this for any person who, by complaining about particular events in his life, implies that he could propose to God better ways of running the universe than those God currently uses. This is a rebuke for all of our complaining, but specifically for Job. Who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? You see, Job has been publicly questioning God's integrity. God's justice. In his complaining, he's acted as though uh, he has a knowledge of how the world ought to be, how things ought to go. And remember, his, Job's, Job is coming out of the same system that he rebuked in his friends. He, he had once held to it. A world, a system in where, where God blesses the people who do right and where God punishes the people who do wrong. And you see, Job's complaints, even though he's rebuked his friends for the system, his complaints are coming out of the same sort of framework. 
This isn't right. I'm righteous and I'm suffering. So he speaks, uh, he feels like he has knowledge about how things ought to go, and that knowledge frees him then to challenge the way God is going about it. And the Lord calls his bluff. Uh, Job, remind me, um, when, when I laid the foundations of the world, where, where were you again? Uh, who, who determined the measurements of the earth? Was that, was that you or me? I, Verse 18, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth, Job? Declare if you know all this. I mean, I've, I've been talking a lot. Feel free to jump in. Let me know. Answer at any time. Uh, where is the dwelling place of light? Verse 19. Uh, verse 21, you know, for, for you were born then, weren't you? It's a rebuke, you see. It, it, it's meant to be a rebuke. It's not, it, we've got to be careful. God is not mocking Job. I don't believe God mocks his children. But he is rebuking him. All the questions that God asks reveal, on the one hand, the infinite wisdom and power and majesty and glory and goodness of God, and on the other hand, the minuscule, incredible littleness of Job's knowledge and, and his ability. And, and God goes in, in, in some of these verses specifically about Job's ability. Lack of it. Um, who, who laid the earth's cornerstone? Well, that, that was God. Who shut in the sea uh, with doors? Verse 8. Well, that, that would be God. Who cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? 25. That, that would be God. From whose womb did the ice come forth? Same. Who has given understanding to the mind? Verse 36. Who can number the clouds, of, uh, the clouds by wisdom? 37. Who provides for the raven its prey? 41. God, 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 and God alone. And then verse 31 and following, uh, questioning Job's abilities with a repeated uh, refrain of, can you, can you, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion, the constellations of the heavens? Can you, can you order and organize and, and bind them and in, 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 in so they're, they're where they need to be? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their seas and guide the bear? Again, probably um, the, the, the constellation with its children. Do you know the ordinances of the heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your clouds to the, uh, your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and, and they say to you, here we are. Right? God summons lightning and it says, coming, here we are. Because he's God. He's God. And only God can do these things. And again, God's not mocking Job. He's rescuing him. He's bringing Job to a deeper understanding of who he actually is, the living God. You see, God had, Job had molded God into the box of his expectations and then was dismayed when God the, the, the God that he'd put in that box didn't stay in the box. And God did things that he could not, did not expect and could not understand. But God will not be bound by our expectations. He won't, be, he won't, he won't conform himself to our, to our idolatries. He is God. He's not like us. He's not obligated to us. He exists for his own purpose and his own glory, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Notice how God ends 
this first speech in chapter 40. The Lord, God said, the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, or you could also translate it, accuses God. But I'm answer. You see, the, the point is, and we'll see this as we, as we move forward, Lord willing, God knows what he's doing. In all of creation, God is the one who orders and organizes and ordains all things. There is no fault in God. He made it. He made all of it. He sustains all of it. He ordains all of it. And he does all of it well. Now again, that's a truth that, that many of you have heard since your youth. You've grown up hearing that. The stunning thing about this speech at this place is that God is making that speech to a man whose life has been utterly decimated by suffering and evil. God is coming to Job on the ash heap to say, Job, I don't make mistakes. Christopher Ash says, amazingly and soberingly, to the man whose wealth God has confiscated, whose family God has taken away, whose greatness God has removed, whose health God has ruined, God says in summary, I have made no mistake. My counsel is perfect. I have got nothing wrong. The sheer glory that almost feels like audacity of God being God. God being God. And so in his speech, we'll find that the Lord does not answer Job's questions, not directly at least. He does not explain to Job why he did what he did. What he does is reveals to Job that Job does not have knowledge. Job doesn't see what God sees. Job doesn't know what God knows. Job can't do what God can do as the, as, the, as the God of the universe. And therefore, Job has no standing. He has no right to call God to account. He doesn't get it. Boys and girls, uh, imagine that your, your, your math teacher was some genius, has all sorts of doctorates. Um, is, is, she, they can do a whole math equation on the board that doesn't have a single number in it. All right, That's how you know they just left off. And suppose you in the third grade um, decide to take it on yourself to challenge that equation that it makes no sense. Well, that, that, that would be a silly thing to do, right? Because, why? Well, because you don't know what you're talking about. Having gotten through third grade in math doesn't qualify you to speak into that level of genius. And, and Tim Keller points out, um, we, we, we all recognize the foolishness of the third grader. And yet we take it on ourselves freely to criticize the living God about the weather, about the circumstances, about the context we find ourselves in. Complaining is criticizing. We've, we have no, we have no that, that seems perfectly normal to us. And it, but it's just, no, it's vastly more foolish. God is God. And God presents himself as God to Job on the ash sheep. He doesn't owe Job an explanation. He doesn't. And he doesn't owe us one either. 
Derek Thomas says he does not have to bend down and accommodate himself to our way of understanding and provide us with answers. He doesn't. We have to trust him. You see, friends, to trust God when you do not understand God, when he has not met your expectations, to trust him then is to treat him as God, the real God. And, th- and that's what Margaret comes to at the end of her novel. She says, God, if he was my accomplice, if God was the, the, the one that was there to help me accomplish the work I was doing, if he was my accomplice, he had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had, he had freed me. If he was God, then he had freed her, you see, from her idolatry of the God of my plans. The God, the God who's there to, to help me achieve my goals and give me the life I desire. She had a hard time getting that novel published. Uh, Christian publishers refused to believe that, uh, that the, the, the story didn't ring true. They, 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 they said God would never do something like this. He would, he would never treat one of his devoted servants like this. And then she pointed out to him, actually, that the novel was just a retelling of her own life. These were her experiences, not, not in the exact form, but exactly the same principles. It was her husband who was speared to death by the men he was trying to reach with the gospel, bringing the work right momentarily to a halt. Uh, she, she, you can just read the story of her life. This is the story of her life. God does do hard things and inexplicable things and things that we did not imagine and we did not expect and that are heartbreaking. And then he calls us to trust him and even to worship him. Keller again says, few people have expressed this idea better than Elizabeth Elliot, who thinking back over her life, the deaths of two of her husbands and countless inexplicable tragedies and troubles, She reflected on the end of Job, and she wrote this, God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Friends, I know some of you are struggling with in your faith because God's ways don't make sense to you. And it's, it's painful. It's hard. And you don't understand why your prayers are not being answered and why heartaches and tragedies and trials just seem to mount up and pile up one after the other because you do love the Lord. And your heart's desire is to please the Lord. And you thought you were. And then your life has been beset with these trials and tragedies. You don't understand why he seems to be dealing so harshly with you. Friend, let God speak to you out of the whirlwind of your life. Lift up your eyes for a moment from your troubles and just see God. See Jesus. Because you see, the voice speaking here is the voice of our Lord. He's the one, we know from Colossians chapter 1, who created all things and upholds them by the word of his power. He's speaking in Job chapter 38. 
And we get to know as New Testament Christians that the Jesus who is ruling over this world and who made it all, who knows all things and ordains every event is the same Jesus who loved you and came to this earth to take on your humanity, to bear your sin, and to lay down his life to make you his child. The Jesus who did not explain himself to Job is the same Jesus who came to this earth to die for Job. And he's done the same for you. He's done the same for me. He loves us. He gave his life for us. And he calls us now to trust him, to worship him, to stop battling with the God of our plans and bow down before the God who is, the God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the God who loved you and gave his life for you, and the God who, because he is sovereignly ordains all things, and because all of his purposes come to pass, and because he has purpose to give you the kingdom of everlasting life in the presence of God, because all of that is true, because he promises that nothing that happens to you will harm you as you trust in him. That Jesus now calls us to worship, to trust, because he's God. Amen. Oh, God our Father, in Jesus Christ, ruling Savior, Lord, and King, Some of us this morning have broken hearts because you've done things that have devastated us and wounded us. And we don't know how to make sense of it. And we've allowed our hearts to become bitter and cold. We don't dare to trust you because you've you failed our trust. And yet, Lord, we, we acknowledge this morning that you did not fail in any way but we were worshiping a God of our expectations and God of our plans. You are and have always been the God of glory and the God of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You've always been the God who's loved us. You've been the God who knows exactly how best to weave the story of our life for our ultimate joy and for your glory. And this morning, Father, you ask us then to lay aside our expectations, our desires, our needs, and for a moment simply to come before you as God and surrender our life to you in all the pain, all the uncertainty, all the fear, whatever it might be. Lord, just to surrender to you, the actual God the living God who has loved us with an everlasting love, who's promised incredible things. And in that, Lord, you promise us peace as we trust in you, as we worship you. Then give us the grace and we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond together in song. Behold our God seated on the throne. Let's adore him.
Now may the Lord, the living God, bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.